Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project... Five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails Special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails remastered Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Remastered, a collaboration. Today we are joined by Stephen Guerra of the History of the Papacy podcast, a fellow Agora Podcast Network alumni and a good history friend of mine to boot. Stephen and I go into a good bit of detail about the War of the Spanish Succession and we really unpack a lot of the things I didn't really give a lot of time to in the four episodes I did have, which sounds a bit ridiculous because I had four new ones and I was approaching it with a fresh mind after five years later, but still, there's always something new you can find. And a lot of the angles that we did look into, such as the issue of succession and was Carlos II really all that inbred after all? And was it really a matter of, rather than a war for the Spanish succession, a war for the French and Spanish succession? All of these are issues we get into, and I really enjoyed doing it. For those of you who like your facts and figures or like a bit of behind-the-scenes information, this was actually the very first collaboration episode I did, so I wonder if it will come across any differently to the other ones. It's certainly a little bit longer than the other ones. I try to keep most of them under an hour, but this one, and I think it was the Russo-Japanese War one went over an hour, but such is the way history goes. I mean, if you don't want to listen to it all, you don't have to, but... For those that do want to, the information's there, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm sure you'll enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed 
talking my mouth off as usual. So yeah, let's get down to it as I take you, not to an era in history, but to a conversation between two history friends, Zach Twomley and Steve Guerra of the History of the Papacy podcast. If you want to find Steve's podcast, if you somehow aren't listening to it already, check out History of the Papacy at a2zhistorypage.com. There you will find the History of the Papacy podcast with loads of information about everything from how to contact Steve to links, images, information about the show notes for each episode, and of course the blog. You can also become a patron for Steve and support him, just as you should be supporting your favourite podcasters, because it's through your support that we are able to still do this. It's how we look at other halves or look at our friends and justify our somewhat, somehow ridiculous podcasting habit. It's not just because we're nerds. It's because, look, we make a bit of money and, you know, in, in a different world, it's, it's, it's sort of a job, isn't it? So, so leave me alone so I can do my job. See, that's kind of what I try to do. But yeah, I think it goes without saying no one's as crazy as me with this because no one else did five weeks to run wild. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because I'm sure they still have their nerves and all their friends intact. But <laughs> you win some, you lose some. Anyway, let's get into this. Thanks for listening, guys, to yet another collaboration episode and I hope you enjoy it. Today we are joined for a special collaboration episode by Stephen Guerra of the History of the Papacy podcast. Welcome on the podcast, Steve. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, you are the first of, well, a good few, really. I'm kind of worried you guys are going to be bombarded by all these guests, but it's a great opportunity to hear from another perspective and hear what other podcasts are like. So go and check out the History of the Papacy podcast. You won't be disappointed. Today, Stephen, are you ready for the War of the Spanish Succession? I'm definitely ready, or kind of ready, at least. <laughs> cool. Pretty ready. All right, great. We'll start with the way uh, I started in the actual episode itself. I split it into four parts for the remaster, which you guys will know. Poor Stephen doesn't know this because we're recording this in February. Sorry to break the fourth wall. But uh, yeah, so as I started in the first episode, we kind of gave a little bit of background. We opened in 1697, the end of a very conflict-laden decade, and or century rather, not just decade, with the Thirty Years' War and the Franco-Dutch War and the War of the League of Augsburg. All these things I'm going to cover, and a few of them I've covered already. So Europe has had five years of peace, and then in 1702 war breaks out. So, uh, Stephen, I believe you have listened to the original episode, you poor thing, um, and you are you are already with a, a whole host of questions for me, <laughs> so I will do my best. <laughs> well, I remember listening to them in the original. Was that one of your fourth or fifth shows? Actually, it was episode six, but you weren't far off the mark, yeah. Episode six. So that was the very young Zach it talking was. there. Very, very young, Zach, yeah. Well, what kind of amazed me is, like, how much continuity there is. Um, not that you haven't grown as a podcaster, but you were really solid in episode six. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I, I would, I, I'm not going to disagree with that statement. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. I like to think that over time I've gotten gradually, well, more with it, I suppose, just generally, but... Yeah, I mean, looking at it objectively, you couldn't even really say that I had a, a general idea of where I was going. Because, <laughs> I mean, my second episode was the, 
the Second Punic War, and like I basically did that because I was geeking out over the the history of Rome. But there you go. What I thought was kind of interesting is that some of those early episodes, after listening to your newer things, like on the Code of Honor, and then going back to um, the War of Spanish Succession, it seems like there is a connection between. Would you say that after your after learning more between almost five years ago and today that there is a connection between that earliest time and what became the Code of Honor? Oh, big time, yeah. And I think uh, especially with Louis the Fourteenth, because Louis the Fourteenth is the kind of guy who, I mean, he launched a war against the Dutch essentially because he was trying to glorify his reign and and basically add to his own legend and everything and he had attacked the spanish netherlands only a few years before that for the same reason so it's a different form of national honor sure but honor would certainly have been a big part of it and glory is pretty much just an ancestor of what we would see as national honor today so yeah it's a good question but i mean at the time it's it's handy really to be able to look back and say oh yeah look the two of them connect so well but at the time i was kind of just making it up as i went along to me, this seems like a huge break between, it's almost like the first modern war, the 30 years war, and those wars like in the early 1600s were quite a bit different than this war on um, in the scale and the tactics. Is there is there anything to that? Uh, yeah, there is. Um, I, I found that the way that generals attack changes a good bit. Mostly, like, in the likes of the 17th century, which we're coming to the end to just before this war started, it was very much lining up and pikemen squares and lining up the artillery and all that kind of thing. And it was a pretty much a bloodbath, and a lot of it had to do with numbers and luck. But there seems to be a lot more kind of strategy going on. Um, you don't so much have uh, reputations of of the soldiers like the... Uh, in the early part of the 17th century, the spanish Turkio formation, which was basically the way that the armies fought with combined pikemen and muskets and normally in squares. But the whole thing was, oh, the Spanish won't break, the Spanish won't break kind of thing. And they were like the elite of the elite. Once they broke, of course, that, that was all forgotten about. But my, my point is, in a roundabout way, in the 1700s, you have generals actually trying out maneuvers. For example, Frederick the Great in the mid in the mid-1700s, does this thing called the Oblique Order, which basically involves attacking with all of his army at one specific flank. Whereas in this war here, and um, what you have is John Churchill, the Duke of Marlborough, attacks the flanks individually so that the, ar- the, so that the enemy thins out his centre. Then once that centre is thinned out, he massively attacks then at the centre because it's weaker, so it's easier to attack it. And that won him a good few battles, and it actually won him the Battle of um, Malplaquet. I mean, it was a Pyrrhic victory, and that was like the one that was seen as the the, the victory that uh, that cost the Allies and the defeat that reinvigorated France. But yes, to answer your question in this really roundabout way, uh, basically what it consists of, you see generals or commanders or what have you actually using battle tactics for wars such as these, I'm not sure if that's because they had the technology or they were just allowed to experiment more, but it seemed more like a clash of numbers in the past, whereas now there's actually more military theory. It's kind of interesting, too, that there's there's the mixture of that they're fighting for these um, old blood. Look at these pictures of the Habsburgs, like Charles II, and they can't even change his face in the pictures. Like He's got that enormous Habsburg chin, and his eyes are so close together. I 
God, the poor guy. Like, I, I feel bad for him in a way, but it's just so... I mean, they must have known... I, would, I Actually, I wonder if they do if they knew at the time why he was so deformed. I mean, there must have been... Like, there was definitely, like, theories back then even about how bad incest could, like, kind of... I mean, because it was. It was just, like, his parents... Like, his parents, his dad was Philip IV, and Philip IV had married his niece in order to conceive Charles II. And that was before the inbreeding that had taken place before that. I mean, other dynasties engaged in it too, for example. Like, Louis XIV actually married his cousin, Maria Theresa. And all the all the issue that they were given since were, were the result of that union, and they turned out relatively fine. But I think the gene pool, the Habsburg gene pool, had always been very, very close. And even when you had... Spanish Habsburgs marrying Austrian Habsburgs. I mean, the bloodline was desperate for some new DNA, but they just never seemed to get me. That's so interesting, too, because the church had rules of consanguinity. I think it was seven generations, but obviously they were giving them passes. Yeah, actually, on, um, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, I don't know if you catched the, um, the recent uh, kind of docudrama I don't even know if you could call it a docu, but it's it's a drama anyway on Louis XIV. It's called Versailles. But in that, it depicts uh, Louis XIV actively sleeping with uh, Henry... What was her name again? She was called Manette anyway, for short, but she would have been uh, Louis's sister-in-law because she would have been married to uh, Philippe, who was Louis's brother. She was also Charles II of Britain's sister, but uh, I found it interesting that that was frowned upon. It was considered incest to uh, sleep with or what have you with your in-laws. But apparently it was <laughs> fine to go off with your cousin. Um, I mean, they did get dispensation from the Pope. Uh, the two of them had to, like Maria Theresa and Louis Fourteenth, did apply for that. But I mean, it was a foregone conclusion because the Pope's already going to say no since it had been done so many times. Going back to even Roman times, they were pretty strict on that sort of thing. You weren't allowed to marry within maybe 10 generations of your father's side, but you could marry your maternal first cousin because they didn't believe they were blood relations. <laughs> I think that's... Wow. But, I mean, at least they had some idea that you needed to have a couple more branches on the family tree. Yeah, I wonder if that was done for reasons of just being taboo, though, or was it because there was actual genetic reasons. Yeah, I guess that could be one of those things where they're seeing that if too many people on one side got married, that's something, but I mean, that's a very long view mm. of things. Maybe it was just a taboo. Yeah. I, I often found interesting Carlos II. I often call him just to, cause there's an awful lot of Charles is floating around at this stage. So Carlos, to me, he kind of, embodies the Spanish Empire in the in the opening years of the 18th century because like their disabled king essentially the Spanish Empire was really on the downward spiral at this stage and it that that downward spiral I mean not to say it came out of the blue but certainly in the space of their long war with France which went from 1635 to 1659 in in that space of time really Spain emerged from that completely different in terms of power projection than it had been before so i think carlos really he captures that and i actually in in the episode i compared the two of them like the the fact that spain had no heirs it was like infertile essentially whereas louis the 14th 
he had children, he had grandchildren, great-grandchildren would be on the way, like, he was bountiful and fruitful, just like his empire was. I thought that was an interesting contrast. Yeah, definitely. It did seem like Spain, their empire was drying up at that point. Yeah, definitely, big time. The the unfortunate, well, not unfortunate, but I suppose interesting fact about Carlos II is that we know that the war of the Spanish succession started in 1702 officially, but Carlos died in November 1700. But the fact that all up until that point, and he was only 42, I think, when he died, but all up until that point, every every year they expected him to die at any moment. I mean, this aside from the fact that they didn't expect him to live into adulthood or whatever kind of adulthood he actually had every every year there was there was rumors about his latest illness people were talking about how long he was for this world and a lot of the deals even what i saw during the franco-dutch war in in the 1670s and you had the holy roman emperor at that time leopold was doing a lot of deals with uh, louis the 14th in anticipation of the fact that carlos was going to die and throw everything into confusion so I think it's interesting that rather than dying, say, at the time when the Turks were besieging Vienna in 1683, Carlos had the decency to die 20 years later when there really wasn't any kind of war going around already. Was he an able administrator, at least? Or was he also mentally affected by the oh, um, inbreeding? Yeah. He was big time mentally affected, uh, Steve. Like, it was so bad, I mean... He couldn't eat, he, he, he could barely speak, um, and they didn't educate him or school him because they thought it would tax his body and his mind too much. And so they kind of just, I don't even know, like, it's, I mean, if they tried to depict it today, it would probably be really controversial, but he would have, like, he, he was just very disabled, really. I mean, there is no real other way to put it. Uh, he wouldn't have been able to do anything, he wouldn't have been up to much. Whether he he would have understood because the the basics would have been instilled in him that he was the king, all that kind of stuff. He would have known what was what. I mean, he was with it enough to approve things such as essentially granting the line to Louis the Fourteenth in the end. For all intents and purposes, he was a non-issue, and his advisors pretty much carried the day. I think it's tough to wrap your mind around a a leader who would be in that situation, but I did. Nowadays, you just don't meet people with those types of disabilities anymore who are, I mean, inbred doesn't seem like the right, like a um, nice <laughs> way to say it, but um, people who uh, have a lack of genetic diversity, that's just not that common anymore. I know. For the record, lack of genetic diversity is a very, very PC way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's not. I mean, that's what makes me think that they must they mustn't have realized how bad I mean, because there was nothing stopping Philip IV from marrying some German princess had he wanted to. It would have been far more beneficial. And in fact, we wouldn't even be talking about the war of the Spanish succession because Philip IV, for all his flaws in in administration and etc., he would have been able to produce children. He had produced children with his previous wife one of which was Maria Theresa, who married Louis XIV. But the problem was he went along with traditions of the Habsburg line and married back into the family when he really shouldn't have. Yeah, I don't know if it's just an accident, but it seemed like some of the places where a um, pater patrius would have a illegitimate children and then legitimize them, they seem to wind up being a little bit more healthy 
than the ones who kept it in the family. Yeah, and you know, I'm surprised that there wasn't any. I think it would have been too much of a stretch for Spain because Spain was still very conservative then. And I think it would have been massively frowned upon. Like Philip IV would have had mistresses, but he wouldn't have been able to acknowledge them without like some serious kind of blowback, like with acknowledging, like legitimizing any kind of issue would have been very controversial as well. Um, so he couldn't do what the likes of Louis XIV did. And in fact, everyone was jealous of Louis XIV in that count because Louis XIV, he didn't have a rotating door of mistresses, but he had the famous ones or the infamous ones like Madame de Maintenon and Madame de Mospin and all that kind of thing. Those were the two big ones, but the children that came from that he was able to acknowledge, whereas the likes of Charles II in Britain, he longed to be able to to just be able to kind of have his mistresses. I mean, they were out in the open, but there was still a kind of a veneer of kind of, oh, well, if if Charles, if our if our king can't restrain his princely will, then, like, what hope is there for our kingdom kind of thing, like... It was seen as a weakness almost that they had mistresses at all, which I suppose is good to us because it would prevent adultery. But at the same time, Charles was very much uh, jealous of his of his French cousin and the freedom that Louis had. But I suppose that's what happens when you're an absolutist monarch. During this war, new people started to come up like Eugene of Savoy. He wasn't from a super wealthy, super high um aristocratic family if i'm not mistaken right or am i completely off base with that well you're not you're not completely off base his cousin was the duke of savoy but uh the duke of savoy had numerous cousins many of which we don't even know the names of and i was looking into it before to see where he got the of the eugene of savoy where the of savoy came from because he wasn't born in savoy right no he wasn't he was born in paris and i can't remember i'm not sure if it was a it was it was a legitimate birth, all right. There was no kind of like, oh, the the great royal Savoy house, because it was at that stage Savoy. It was it wasn't in the decline by any means, and it would stick around like in perpetuity, really. And then its royal house would go on to be the royal family of Italy. But for for the moment, it was essentially a vassal state of France, and I suppose that explains why he was born in Paris at all, because at that stage. I mean, that was like Paris was seen as the high life. If you were in Savoy, you were pretty much in France. So that was how people progressed their careers. What would he have considered himself, a Savoyan or a Frenchman? Well, Do we have any idea of like his self-identity? Well, we know that he didn't consider himself French for sure once he was rebuffed by Louis XIV's military standards because as impressive as Eugene was as a military mind, he apparently wasn't particularly charismatic and he wasn't very tall and he had a... either his left leg or his right leg, one of his legs was uh, was kind of misshapen or something, so he walked with a sort of limp. So Louis XIV wasn't said to be very impressed with him, so he didn't allow him into the army kind of thing. And back in those days, if you were a, a relative, I mean, if you were a brother or sister of a, of a duke or a king, then you were reasonably okay. But you, if you were a cousin, it was almost expected you would try to get into the army somehow. So by kind of denying Eugene of Savoy into the army, Louis kind of set a fire under him. And uh, from that moment, if he had been considering himself French, from that moment, he was a, a Savoyard and he, he promptly ran over to the side of the Habsburgs and pretty much stayed with them until the end of his life, really. Then you fold in John Churchill. He was really just one step up from a nobody, yeah. pretty much, wasn't yeah. he? 
Big time. And do you know, it's interesting because this really was the moment uh, when that family, the Churchills, really kind of got somewhere, uh, like, as as far as being in, in the public eye as much as they were here and then would be then down the line. I mean, we know the more famous Churchill, the Duke of Marlborough here kind of established his family name. And actually, uh, 50-50 is, is really the reasons why he, he became so kind of famous in Britain. I mean, was he a good commander? Absolutely, no question. Some people say that he is or was the best one that Britain ever had on land. But then on the other hand, he had a very convenient relationship. His wife, Sarah, was really the best friend of, of the Queen. So that certainly helped matters as well. But then on the other hand, when those two fell out, we instantly see uh, John Churchill's military career go on a nosedive. But that's also because of the Battle of Malplaquet and the terrible casualties. that Because whenever John Churchill tended to fight in, in battles, he the nature of the way that he used his tactics, like I said from before, when he used to attack the sides and then attack the center, that was hugely costly in terms of lives because you had to do a lot of risky stuff. Um, and the perception was back home in Britain that he wasn't taking care of the actual soldiers properly. And now if you put that into, into perspective, I mean, if the people back home are saying that, as little as they cared about soldiers, the average Joe soldier back then, um, he must have been very, uh, very uncaring, <laughs> very uncaring indeed of even the common people were saying it back home well they i mean at least they were at least they had some voice in the matter where i'm sure in other places the uh, the kings and the dukes didn't care one whit what the common person had to say well yeah big time <laughs> but uh churchill to his credit he did manage to kind of increase his star power certainly and he pretty much established a family name by by doing so so yeah, it was it was the time for rising stars, really, Eugene and Churchill both, and they proved to be a pretty essential tag team for the next, well, certainly for this war anyway. The way they fought in Europe, it was so Europe-centric. Now, I understand that that's the game, but each of these, Spain and France and England, had really prosperous colonies all over the world. And it, when I listened to your episode, it just made me think that they treated these colonies like an ATM machine. <laughs> Is that how they, I don't know if they call that an ATM machine in Europe or not, well, a bank cash do, machine. Yeah. That, that's they... all they cared about yeah. with their colonies. Mm. Big time, yeah. Do you know, they, they one of the main uh, casus bellies for uh, Britain and the Netherlands at this point, the fact that Louis made his grandson second grandson philip who accepted the throne of spain he made philip basically cut british and the dutch out from the slave trade in the americas and that was seen as insulting enough and and damaging enough to the british and dutch finances to get them involved in the war so that kind of goes back to the point of the uh the slaves were an atm machine as much as the colonies were and unfortunately they were this hideously connected triangle that Really, they just supplied. They were all all those elements were just there to supply the the home, the mother country with money. It slowly, I mean, in the last fifty years before this war, there had been a focus on colonizing rather than simply using the likes of the the Caribbean, like those kind of spice islands, or uh, say like the East Indies, that kind of thing. It was coming to be seen more, especially with the, the growth and importance of like the likes of the 13 colonies and New France and New Spain and all that kind of stuff. There was more of a focus on 
settlement rather than simply uh, an ATM machine. But at, at this stage, I think it was still 70-30. They were still very much using those home col- those colonies as a place to get money and, and slaves from, really. That's part of probably Spain's biggest problem is that they never really figured out. Spain always seemed to be in the old school. Like, they never really grew out of a medieval power. They always mm. had a medieval mindset. Yeah, big time. And I think that's especially seen with how all the things that that kind of like, because if you were wondering like, oh, how did the Spanish decline? Like within the space of a century, it seemed like they were completely usurped by France. People forget that like the natural order before then, like before Castile and Aragon united to form Spain, like France was in the ascendancy. But even even then, like the reason, one of the big reasons why Spain managed to go on a nosedive so fast is because there was this this engendered sense of kind of corruption and conservatism and and a lot of the things that the Spanish were doing to make money, such as getting silver from their from their colonies and all that kind of thing, and having redi- like we think uh, the thing in Ireland at the moment is like well, really permanently is the controversy over how big the bureaucracy is and so much red tape and all that jazz. I mean, in Spain, the country moved very slowly because there were so much people and so many kind of artificial positions there was a lot of nepotism a lot of engendered corruption and all that kind of thing and it was just a slow puncture in the spanish empire really and it had been ongoing really since medieval times i mean initially it hadn't mattered so much because all the other countries were either preoccupied like the french wars of religion kind of paralyzed france for nearly a century or all the civil wars in britain or what have you but it became an issue really once those countries got more strong. The issue really with Spain was that it hadn't kept up with the pack because it just hadn't modernized and it hasn't advanced beyond its kind of medieval or semi-medieval ways. A lot of things with economics that, yeah, you can understand that maybe they didn't understand in the early 1500s that bringing a hundred boatloads full of gold and silver would affect the economy, <laughs> but they should have probably gotten the drift by the 1700s that that was happening and that could happen. Yeah. Well, they really should have. I mean, <laughs> I guess they were kind of just like, Oh boy, silver and then more silver and then more silver. It was their major, uh, major boon really that Spain had. They never really upgraded it. They never did really what Britain did where it stored a load of gold and established the gold standard. There was no silver standard. Like it was just kind of like quick make coins kind of thing. As a result of that, and a result of a kind of a lack of forward thinking, Spain was eclipsed, really. Um, It just wasn't able to make use of the resources at its disposal because of the problems that had really never been addressed. Then fighting over a place like the Spanish Netherlands, I'm sure that's a lovely place, but... (laughs) When you're fighting these brutal wars and then you're pretty much ignoring that you're, you own everything essentially from almost Canada to Antarctica and you're not really developing that so that you can fight brutal wars in, yeah. in small, small corners of Europe that really don't amount to much in the end. No. To I mean, further the, the national interest. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the Spanish Netherlands are a kind of... It started off as... Well, I mean, the, like the only real way to explain it is to look back to the Dutch Revolt. But 
I suppose the Spanish, like this goes back to what you said about it being an ATM machine, the Spanish must have thought that their own settlers or merchants or what have you in the new world would do the kind of colonizing work for them and they could kind of focus on home affairs back in Europe. Uh, it was kind of accepted that the Spanish Netherlands was like the buffer between the Dutch Republic and France. At this late in the game, the, the focus of the Spanish Netherlands as being an important uh, commercial hub in Europe, it, it had been massively eclipsed by the Dutch, but the whole point of holding it, originally it had been, it's basically a successor state of the Burgundian Netherlands that were like uh, an inheritance of the Spanish kings, which was why the Spanish were there in the first place. But the reason why it looks so strange to us now, and it's almost like Northern Ireland in a way these days, without being too controversial. The people that lived in the Spanish Netherlands, just like the people who live in Northern Ireland now, they wanted to be ruled by the Spanish, just like people in Northern Ireland, the majority of them want to be ruled by the British still. So it's kind of like they couldn't just leave. And if they did leave, the French would take over and then it would be a massive logistical problem for the Dutch because they'd have the French just on their borders and a lot of Dutch security revolved around the fact that their border was most fortified along the Spanish kind of border because it was expected if France invaded. This Incidentally, this was actually like shattered during the Franco-Dutch War, but the anticipation was that they would invade through the Spanish Netherlands, so they'd be slowed down through that before they actually got to the Dutch Republic. The, I think the Eurocentric focus of Spain has a lot to do with how often Louis XIV challenged them. And I think the unfortunate fact of the Spanish Empire was that they happened to be on the decline just when Louis XIV was out to score a bit of glory for himself. I can't wait to hear your chat episode or talk episode about your Ireland series. <laughs> yeah, actually. That, that'll be a good one. Yeah, oh dear. Well, I ever since doing the 1916 Rising stuff, I mean, I haven't been kneecapped yet, so it seems as, <laughs> it seems as though... Uh, uh, Ireland is is fairly open to having a, a well. I, you know, in Ireland now at the moment, I'd be called a West Brit because I I disagree with the the idea that the rising was a good thing. But that's a whole other story for another day. But uh, yeah, there you go. I'm you haven't alive. been kneecapped yet. Not yet. yet. There's still time. Um, I must get Sean on. Do you know? Funnily enough, Sean chose this moment to uh, move to the Netherlands. Which is not is not just because he's trying to get in the mood for the talk episode on the Franco Dutch War. He actually genuinely moved to the Netherlands, but he'll, he's coming home for the wedding. He says, "We'll see, we'll see if he does come home for the wedding." I, I've been to the Netherlands before; a really nice place, very flat though. And I liked to imagine when I was there, because even then I was a history nerd. And um, I liked to imagine, like, because it's so flat, like the sight of armies coming, you could see them from miles away. I would have thought. The fact, when we were in Holland, first of all, it's a massive province, which is why people call it Holland rather than the Netherlands, I suppose. But there's so much land reclaimed from the sea. It's just incredible, like, engineering-wise. It's it's incredible to me. I just found it very interesting how they created, like, they kind of grew Holland by almost, like, a good third just by taking land back from the sea. I thought that was all very interesting. And I think you can see an army coming because they have to march so slowly through all the muck and swamps yeah. and... Yeah. Um, oh, and a big, a big thing about the the Franco-Dutch War, which was Louis's first greatest hit, you could call it, I suppose. He had three big wars. The Spanish Succession was the last one, um, and the War of the League of Augsburg, or the the Nine Years' War, was the second one, which includes the Glorious Revolution for what it's normally known for. 
But during during that invasion of the Netherlands in the Franco-Dutch War, which Louis basically attacked them for glory, which comes back to what we were saying about national honour and all that kind of stuff. But after refusing uh, like the initially good peace terms from the Dutch because he thought that he was going to destroy them all, the Dutch essentially flooded all their lands. And after that, the uh, the French were pretty much screwed because the only option was to like swim in order to attack forts. Like it was mad. <laughs> But it was the it was the desperate situation the Dutch were in. I mean, they were going for broke. It was national survival, so they had to do what they felt. Yeah, that's another interesting part because they're involved in pan-European wars for several decades before this point at the War of Spanish Succession, and then they're involved in wars basically up until today, fifty years ago. Well, now seventy years ago from World War Two. It's advantageous or disadvantageous geography depending on how you look at it mm. for a relatively small country yeah and i mean they did it all pretty much because of like their position they they kind of took advantage of the situation as a kind of major trading hub of europe once they became independent from spain that was how they defined themselves rather than a, a commercial part of the spanish empire they were certainly they were suddenly uh, the commercial part of Europe because of their experience in safety. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style and trading and all that kind of stuff and that just just massively escalated over the years and then they distinguished themselves during the 80 years war and basically established a kind of a little stronghold it was weird because they had so many like strong forts and a kind of a military tradition of resisting the spanish but then on the other hand they had a far-flung commercial empire that stretched all across the world the results being that the, the dutch were essentially in all the places that anyone wanted to be in and if you wanted to go, like if you wanted to trade in the likes of Japan or South Africa or anything like that, the Dutch were already there. I mean, famously, they were in the East Indies and they were in India as well. And they were in all sorts of places before anyone else was there. And it just kind of 
like how tracing that to kind of their involvement in different wars as well is very interesting because they were like it's almost a forgotten fact how active the Dutch were in Europe really. Yeah, they were really a modern power with modern finances. They didn't necessarily control huge swaths of land, but they had a key fort here and a key fort there that allowed them to trade. When we were in, uh, lived in Taiwan, there was a fort. I think it translated from Chinese as something like Fort Redbeard or something. Huh. And that was a Dutch trading port wow. and fort. And so you're in the middle of it's all Chinese architecture And then there's a classic European star fort in the middle of it. I think it's been recreated since then. But um, I think the Dutch had controlled that fort for several decades, at least, until some things happened. But they really, they didn't have to control places militarily like Spain did. Huge, huge continental colonies, they were able to trade here and then they had easy access and they had the financing and all the insurance built in Yeah, that the Spanish just didn't have and that the French and the English were developing during the 1600s and early 1700s. Mm, big time. I'm like essentially the, the Dutch really, they made themselves indispensable, not just to Europe, but even like immediately after their war with the Spanish, the Spanish, just had to trade with them because they were too important to not be traded with. Like it was an incredible scene. Um, and even like the, the wars that the Spanish would later fight against the French, um, they had to team up with the Dutch because the Dutch were just too important to not be, to not be allied with. But to go back to what you said, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, when Charles II of Britain was struggling with parliament because he was trying to ask them for money, the Dutch already had a, a national bank, like, they knew what they were doing before anyone else really was was in that kind of way of advanced. And as well as that, with, with the likes of the colonies, I mean, they had New Netherland before it was taken by uh, England in the Second Anglo-Dutch War. But I often compare the Dutch to Venice kind of in my head, because like, like the Dutch, the Venetians didn't really establish a kind of empire. But uh, before they were kind of knocked off their perch in the early 1500s, the Venetians kind of established little trading posts in the Mediterranean um, and through that established a very kind of big navy to go along with it. And it kind of, it, it gels with what the Dutch did, really. They didn't necessarily have like an empire, the likes of which we would recognize along the kind of British model or the French model or even the Spanish model, really. Theirs was a kind of a, a commercial uh, empire. It was like a maritime one based upon money-making, really. Theirs was probably the truest thing to an ATM you could possibly get. What's How does this war wind up? Uh, that was kind of confusing because there were so many different swappings and negotiations. What happened in the end? Well, I think the main thing to uh, keep in mind is that for a while it didn't look like there was going to be war at all because the French had their candidates. Louis wanted to appoint his second grandson, Philip as the next king of Spain. The Habsburgs, they wanted to appoint, Leopold wanted to appoint his second son, uh, Charles, as the uh, as the king of Spain. And they eventually were persuaded to compromise through a relatively unknown candidate who was the son of the Duke of Bavaria, a man by the name, now the, the son's name was Joseph Ferdinand, and the duke's name was Maxim, Maximilian Emmanuel II. Um, but unfortunately, for the peace of Europe and for everyone's nerves, 
Joseph Ferdinand would die of smallpox in 1699, which is a great what-if thing. What if smallpox didn't kill him? What would have happened then? But the uh, as a result of that, suddenly there was no middle ground. So the two sides had to make a deal. And actually, interestingly enough, Louis XIV did try to be accommodating. But the real issue was uh, Carlos, the King of Spain, because... Carlos had this mission like his predecessors to, and this may have been instilled within him by his advisors, we don't know too much about that, but he was adamant that his inheritance would not be divided, it wouldn't be partitioned. In other words, the the deal between the Habsburgs and the Bourbons was that the Austrian Habsburgs would get parts of Spain, whereas Louis would get parts of Spain's Italian possessions and the Spanish Netherlands and all that kind of thing. Now that didn't make everyone happy, it didn't make the Dutch or the the British happy, but then at the same time, the British and the uh, the French were doing their own kind of secret deals. I mean, the interesting thing is, in the years before the war broke out, everyone was trying to avoid it in their own way because no one wanted it to happen. But the problem was, when Charles II died of Spain, when he died in his will because he didn't want to partition things, he went with what he believed was the best option, which he thought was Louis XIV's uh, family line. And because he didn't want to partition anything, he left Louis XIV everything. So Louis XIV was faced with the choice of accepting everything um, and basically giving the finger to all of Europe or uh, saying, no thanks, I don't want all of that, my my enemies will have it instead. So it was kind of like he was put in a very difficult position. And people, people always, like in my head before I looked into this war, and I may even, the first time around I did it, I might even have presented it as this, but since I've done it in a more revised form, it's a lot more clear to me. I had always thought, oh, Louis wanted his, he took the throne of Spain, and then Europe uh, responded in force uh, as usual. Oh, Louis is so bad, etc., etc. But actually, it was all Carlos's fault, because Carlos left Louis, probably the most kind of vain, unstable, and certainly powerful king in Europe, he left him with an impossible choice to make. It wasn't like Louis wanted war, but when he was faced with this kind of choice, he he either could choose war or to give his enemies a massive boost. And he chose war, I suppose. What led, what came out of this war? Because it's not like war just ended in, um, in Europe. That was a pretty conflict-filled century, the the whole century after the War of Spanish Succession. Do you see this war as kicking off that century or just a one-off? Um, I think, see, it's kind of hard. On the one hand, I know what you mean. It did, it did kind of, it wasn't by any means the last war of the, I mean, obviously because it happens at the start of the century, but I think Louis XIV's death has a way of kind of, like the year after this war ended, Louis died in September 1715. So in terms of continuity, that really seems like the end of an era for France. And I think that's why that's why most people kind of stop their analysis right there, uh, just of the wars in general. And then they skip ahead to like the Seven Years' War. But in between that period, there's an awful lot going on. Um, only four years after this war ends, what you have is the War of the Quadruple Alliance, which, funnily enough, is fought against Philip V of Spain, who, of course, was Louis' grandson that had been placed on the throne of Spain. But yeah, I mean, back to your point, the War of the Spanish Succession itself was sandwiched in between the War of the League of Augsburg and then the War of the Quadruple Alliance that we just mentioned. So the this this period of history was just a constant... A constant battle, really. I mean, it really was just a constant war that was 
uh, interrupted by a few peace treaties rather than an actual like series of wars, I think you could call it. There was always something, like in 1719, the War of the Quadruple Alliance, in 1727, uh, the Spanish attacked Gibraltar, so the British had to attack them back. So you had the Anglo-Spanish War, which went on for a few years. Um, in 1740, there was the War of the Austrian Succession, which went on for nearly 10 years. That's actually one war I haven't done, the, the War of the Austrian Succession. But then, of course, there was also the War of the Polish Succession in the 1730s. Like, Steve, it's just like, it's just out of control. These people are just crazy. Yeah, I got looking at the War of Polish Succession, and it just seemed like the same thing as the war of spanish succession like very yeah. little of it was fought in actual poland yeah one battle essentially and the rest was all in italy pretty much um <laughs> it was kind of like uh it just seemed like every every throne every throne was up for succession and actually in, interestingly i really got into this more in the remastered version of this episode so you wouldn't have heard this yet but the big deal which kind of set this war in motion, it wasn't so much that Europe was worried that Louis would put his relatives on the throne of Spain. They were more worried that Spain and France would be ruled by one monarch. That was what they really wanted to oppose. And this looked like it was going to happen twice. It looked like it was going to happen at the start of the war, which was a big part of why the war happened. And Louis didn't help his case. You see, they often say that, oh, was it Louis's fault or not? I mean, Louis was placed in a difficult situation, but he kind of, rather than walking on eggshells and being careful, he kind of just insulted everyone. And one of the ways he did that was by uh, by refusing to remove Philip, the new king of Spain, from the French line of succession. And this, of course, freaked everyone out because it made it possible that Philip would become the king of Spain and France once Louis Fourteenth died, should something happen. Now, that was early days in 1700, so there was still plenty of uh, issue left for Louis to give the throne to. The next time this happened wasn't really Louis's fault, because between 1711 and 1712, pretty much everyone of Louis's closest family died. His son died, Le Grand Dauphin, his grandson died, his third grandson died, and then his great-grandson died. So by the time Louis was kind of nearing his end... The only people that were left to inherit the French throne was either Philip V of Spain or a two-year-old toddler uh, who was the second great-grandson of Louis XIV, and he was sick with measles. So this was 1714, and Europe had just fought for ages over the throne of Spain, and now it looks like Philip, once this two-year-old died, uh, it looked like Philip would have to take the throne of France because there was no one else to do it. And, of course, that would set up the War of the French Succession, <laughs> which uh, which mercifully for Europe didn't happen because this two-year-old recovered from his measles, and that's why we have Louis XV. But there you go. I mean, that that's another thing. What if what if Joseph Ferdinand hadn't died of smallpox? I mean, what if this, this Louis XV had died of his measles? There would have been yet another war. I mean, it was just nonstop. That's such an interesting area or era in history. I read something, I don't know if it's complete urban legend or not, but Maria Teresa, Maria Teresa, she's beloved in Austria, but in Slovakia they don't like her at all. And they were building a bridge from right near Bratislava to Vienna. I guess they're only about 30 miles ish. Uh, 45 kilometers apart from each other and they had a national vote on what to name this bridge new bridge they were building mm -hmm. and maria Teresa bridge came in at fifth fourth or third was chuck norris memorial bridge <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, I don't. That could be an urban legend, but I did read that somewhere. This is maybe about four, three, four years ago. Oh wow, that's amazing. <laughs> oh, I've never heard that before, but I by no means want to disprove that. Uh, that no, that... I'd, let's just leave it out there. Yeah, I'm sure it must be true. That's kind of like the whole Boaty McBoatface thing. Did you hear about that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jeannie, just never let anyone choose the name of anything. It's just like it's too, uh, it's too much for people. <laughs> I'm trying to start a petition to change a couple of bridges around here to Chuck Norris Memorial <laughs> <Yeah>. Bridge. <laughs> there was also a big sorting out after each one of these conflicts. They'd always swap New World possessions. I thought it was interesting. This is the point where Great Britain, is it Great Britain at this point? You explained that in the episode. Oh, not you until... were careful on how you uh, use those two terms. Yes. Yeah, you see, I, I was careful, but then on the other hand, I kind of just do like, you see, you see, it's difficult because technically speaking, Britain didn't unify until the Act of Union in 1707. But then on the other hand, Scotland was taking part in all the things that England was doing. So if you just say England all the time before 1707, people are guaranteed to go, oh, what about the Scottish? Oh, they took part as well, Zach. So then I'd have to say England and Scotland all the time. So it's sometimes easier to just say Britain. And then maybe after 1707, I could say like the United Kingdom. But even then, like, I don't, I'm not the picky one. I'm not going to say, oh, well, the Irish took part as well. So I'm going to have to say England, Scotland and Ireland every time I want to say England, which is obviously just stupid. So I don't know, maybe my own, uh, my own uh, laziness and non-PCness in, in, <laughs> impels me to say Britain when it's not exactly accurate. But sorry, more to your point. What were you going to say there? This is the war where Acadia and I guess you'd call it Maritime Canada was switched from French to English British control, which led ultimately not direct, not all at one time, but this is where the Cajuns came from. At least that's one of the theories. Cajuns in Louisiana, oh. some were forced to go, some chose to go to a French holding, and that's why this little corner of Canada, Acadian, is really different than Quebecois. Okay. Oh, you see, my my American geography and sense of history, and this goes with Canada as well, is next to useless, so I didn't know that at all. But that kind of relocation thing, all that kind of history is very, very interesting. Do you know if they trace, they actively trace their history back to this moment? I think there's a, there's a historical and a semi-legendary tracing, but they do one. Um, I actually had a chance to go on a family vacation there. And when we were there, it was Acadia Fest. And when we drove through a parking lot, half of the license plates were from Louisiana. (laughs) Wow. If you're in a place like Halifax and you drive north, you go into, I believe it's New Brunswick. And once you enter Acadia, English stops. Wow. And everything's in French. But... As you're, and there's no Canadian flags. It's all Acadian flags. Then you hit a town, and everything's in English, and they're flying the Canadian flag and the Union Jack. <laughs> then you drive a couple more miles, and then that's gone, and it's all Acadian and French again. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm even fascinated in modern-day Canada, the fact that it maintains the, the French 
element, really, and a sizable amount, really. I mean, I was reading before, uh, and I suppose this would be obvious, but the fact that a Canadian Premier or what have you, the Prime Minister, has to be fluent, or at least it's severely frowned upon if he's not fluent in both England, English and French. Um, I just thought that was interesting, that, that they keep that going. And I mean, I suppose that has a lot to do with the cultural identity, but in de- like the next 50 or 60 years in the 1700s, pretty much where this whole Canadian problem comes from. So yeah, I, I, I didn't know that about the Acadians at all. That's that's a learn something new every day. How about that? Huh. Yeah, that's in, it, it is interesting in Canada where their last uh, prime minister was from just the middle, completely flat, uh, all English. You'd you'd I can't say you'd even see French signs there unless they're mandatory man, <laughs> mandated by the government. But yeah. he spoke pretty passable French. I mean, I'm no expert in French, but I can, when I hear it, it sounded pretty good. Yeah, yeah. The, I thought that I recognized their name. It's the the Cajuns now. This is gonna this is gonna either be really funny or really really offensive. So bear with me. <laughs> Did you ever see now the so called History Channel has this program on it called Swamp People? Is that is that what the Cajuns? I can't even believe I'm bringing this up, but is <laughs> is that the uh, is that where the Cajuns participate? Are are they the ones on that program? Yeah, I think or there's. Um modeled after cajuns i think i've i have seen that show once or twice and some of them are cajuns and some of them are just sort of um backwoods type <laughs> yeah. and i think the line's a little blurred now after the centuries mm. a lot of the people they don't even speak any recognizable form of acadian french anymore mm. it's just a few words that they use where i think not too long ago really like formal education was pushed during those times where like any sort of like um, linguistic diversity would be completely smashed out when you went to public school. Yeah. That's where a lot of that died out from. Uh, Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. All right. Isn't there something, didn't that happen in Ireland at some point where Gaelic wasn't, was verboten? Oh yeah. Every, everything Irish was forbidden from references to Ireland to Irish style haircuts at one point, which I don't really know why you would categorize as Irish style haircuts, I suppose. (laughs) I mean, if they could do that with the man bun, thankfully the man buns kind of declined a bit, but if they could do that with the man bun, that would be great. Yeah, let's get the man bun uh, <laughs> hairstyle banished. Banned. The point was to erase the Irish identity, which actually the British did a good job of not doing. I'm not sure if that was more because the French Canadians resisted or because they the British just saw no real point in, in getting rid of them. But yeah. Yeah, that's sort of a uh, controversial issue depending on who you talk to. Okay. Let's change the subject then. Yeah. <laughs> but all those things, they used almost those possessions as chips, trading chips. Okay, oh, I'll give you this one time. for that one. And okay, let's just, we'll pretend this didn't happen. Oh, yeah. I'm, I think the biggest example of that, Steve, is the uh, the Seven Years' War, which happens from 1756 to 63. That, that war is infamous for basically Britain kicking... Uh, the French out of America and and France, well, with the exception of Louisiana, obviously, but the French had a strategy in that war and it was basically focus on Europe and take things that can be used to trade back to the British in order to get back the colonies that we might lose to Britain. For example, the French attacked Hanover nonstop during the war and for the first two years they essentially occupied it 
And the idea was in the peace treaty, we'll trade back Hanover, which the British owned because of their royal family coming from Hanover. So Britain had to awkwardly look after Hanover for like a whole century. But that's another story. But yeah, so with the French occupying Hanover, they thought in their minds, okay, we have Hanover now. This is a good bargaining chip to use should we want to. I mean, it works. It's a kind of a different thing to what you were saying because it's in Europe rather than the New World. But it's still a bargaining chip in that they thought they could use this land to pay for land they might lose in the Americas, say. This is also the war that brought us the balance of power. Is that accurate to say that this is really when the british started thinking in terms of balance of power uh sort of yes and actually a forgotten fact is essentially when when the dutch invaded uh britain in 1688 and kind of william the third and and mary had the glorious revolution and stuff some historians see that as the moment when britain was turned away from its kind of uh pseudo-catholic pro-french sympathies um, at least in terms of the monarchy, because the whole glorious revolution wouldn't have happened had the the commonality and, and parliament as a whole not been more kind of Protestant and anti-French. And um, so I think in a way, even judging from those kind of undercurrents, you could just say that the that the Stuarts uh, kind of led Britain astray, <laughs> I suppose, because I mean, even... Even in the times of Elizabeth, you had her supporting the Dutch against the Spanish in their war, supporting the Huguenots in in, in France against the Spanish Catholic League uh, in the interests of the balance of power. See, the balance of power is one of those things, it's kind of, on the one hand, it's controversial because it's a very kind of catch-all term, and it puts it tends to put things in boxes, which historians, some historians do like, but I really don't like. But then on the other hand, the, like obviously in the case of this war, and in wars before and after, countries acted in the interests of the balance of power, even if they didn't necessarily say so. They acted because, say, Louis the Fourteenth was way too powerful, we must oppose him as one. I mean, that's the balance of power in all but name. In the sense that the British saw it as the balance of power, I suppose you could say that they did, really. But you could also make a case for that from 1688 onwards with the War of the League of Augsburg. I suppose the Spanish succession is the most blatant case, though. We can kind of tie this into our uh, Westphalia episode we did in Agora. Is it pretty, can we say that religion really was done at this point? Matter of fighting over? Sort of. Like, again, there's gray areas because a great example that I can point to of religion not being dead is actually Louis XIV, mainly because he had this whole idea of like Catholic majesty and everything and religion was very much still a big deal in Britain and in France to the extent that when Charles II with his Catholic sympathies wanted to bring in acts of indulgence and kind of end the ban on Catholic worship and end the penal laws the British people were horrified and Parliament wouldn't allow it and they blocked him at every turn and Charles was so frustrated. Similarly when uh, revoked the edict of I always pronounce it wrong, but it's spelled N-A-N-T-E-S. I think it's Nantes or something. I don't know why. I always I always pronounce it wrong. I'm terrible at French. But he revoked that in 1685 which with what was called the Edict of Fontainebleau. And that basically meant that uh, the Huguenots or Protestant worship in France was pretty much outlawed. So as a result, you had a huge diaspora of French Huguenots, many of whom went to Ireland, in fact, and, and did quite well for themselves there. But actually more of them went to the likes of Brandenburg, Prussia, the Dutch Republic, those kinds of things. And they went on to have huge influences and impacts on those countries' cultures. With the result, you have Prussian generals and Dutch generals having French names, um, and the same in Ireland as well. I know just 
in Greystones where I live, there's the Latouches and they were a, a Huguenot family and they essentially came here because of what Louis the Fourteenth did. So it's interesting in that kind of sense. I mean, Louis XIV didn't fight a war, per se, against the Huguenots, and to a degree, the Huguenots had been a problem since the French Wars of Religion 150 years before the 1700s. But even in that sense, it might not have started a war, to answer your point, Steve. It didn't necessarily start a war, but it certainly perpetuated a kind of tension in society. Maybe that's a better way to put it. <laughs> when I looked over at the papal, if try and tie in the papacy to some degree to this, the Pope really wasn't a player at all in it. Uh, at, by that point, really, Popes, they asked kind of for his support, but Pope Clement XI, he just kind of kept his hands out of it because the papacy was dealing with a lot of issues that were much closer to home in Italy and in the Balkans. Oh, then, right. And they didn't really have much of a say or in what was going on in these really Catholic countries like Spain and mm. Austria, the Holy Roman Empire parts of it, and yeah. Spain. Yeah, I did read, I don't know how much you know about this or if this is even correct, but 1709 is kind of like one of the low points of the war of the Spanish succession for Louis. And one of the reasons why it was supposed to be a, so low was because... In January of 1709, the, the papacy, so I suppose Clement XI, was uh, pressured into recognizing uh, Archduke Charles as the king of Spain. So it was the accepted candidate of, of the Allies against France, essentially, because of the, the pressure of troops nearby in Italy. I don't, know, I don't know if that's even correct. January 1709, I think it's embarrassing. I think I read it on Wikipedia when I was looking up for... <laughs> for this war a few years ago and it kind of just stuck with me as as an interest i never fact checked it since but uh i suppose if i put a little asterisk asterisk beside it tell people not to take it as fact it doesn't really matter where i read it it's fine yeah that's right it does. <laughs> you can do your own homework yeah. yeah for everything that i've read up until this point the really for the few centuries before that the papacy was really dealing with local issues and trying to horn in a more a pope with more personality and gravitas might be able to stick their nose into Spain or France's issues if they wanted to. Yeah. But really, otherwise, I mean, a lot of this war was fought in northern Italy, and the pope didn't have any armies or anything to really respond to enforce what he wanted or his will. Mm-hmm. There isn't there wouldn't really be much records of what he did even want, I suppose, either. Yeah, I think this is moving into a papacy even more so that we see now of soft power than direct military control. The papal states would shrink and expand a little bit, but it really wasn't, you know, there, there's hundreds of years where there's a pope nobody's ever heard of, probably really after um, Alexander the Seventh, I think it is, in um, the Borgia Pope, the pope who brought us that wonderful show, The Borgias. <laughs> After him, I mean, it's probably not until maybe a pope in the 1800s that would be a name that most people have heard of. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right, all right. I often found the, the I don't know if you've come across this now in the history of the papacy. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but one of the wars I did was the War of the League of Cambrai from 1508 to 16, I think it was. And it was basically a war fought to kind of knock Venice off its perch. And in that, the Pope, uh, Giuliano de Revere, I think his name was, yeah. he was, he was the warrior Pope. So I, I think that was kind of 
the high point. And then, of course, there was the Thirty Years' War, and the popes were active in that. But contrary to popular belief, the Peace of Westphalia didn't actually state that the papacy had no powers, because by that point, it was kind of a, a, like, it was de facto accepted that the papacy couldn't compel anyone to do anything. I mean, uh, like, the, the papacy, I think, as you said, soft power was the way it, it operated, because... I mean, the size of the armies marching around at, at this point as well, it was just unlike anything that had been seen before. So in that sense, the papacy certainly couldn't contribute uh, their own kind of power base. No, you're talking about imperial armies here of thousands and hundreds of thousands. Yeah. And the papal states, not even every city inside of the papal states was always completely beholden to the papacy their ability to raise armies was not even remotely the same as what some like France could put together. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think we're uh, coming to the end of the collaboration episode now. Is there anything you'd want to ask or add or more importantly, plug? (laughs) (laughs) Well, before I plug, uh, what would be your last takeaway from this? What would, if you were saying like, if you wanted to tie your, whole corpus of podcasts hundreds of episodes where does the war of spanish succession fit in as far as diplomacy and your just your body of work um that's a good question uh i think more it's it's a great advertisement for when you think you know a war but then you look into it and you're like oh there's so many more layers to this than i realized like rather than being called the war of the spanish succession the war was actually fought because the Allies feared that Louis was going to combine the two thrones of France and Spain. So it should really be called like the war for the two thrones or something like that, <laughs> rather than the war of the Spanish succession. But yeah, I mean, I I think it's a great advertisement for you think you know a story, but you only know how it ends. Um, to get to the heart of the story, you have to go back to the beginning. Like anyone who knows when diplomacy fails, that's a quote from the Tudors, but I've come <laughs> back to it so many times because it, it rings true again and again, and especially here. Then how does how do you think it fits into what you as a creator have done? In terms of like if it's if it's one of my favorite episodes or or yeah, and how like do you that? think it in your growth as a podcaster? Um, I think it was after the after the Franco Prussian War. It was the war that I'd kind of heard about, and like the way I normally do the dad test. If I mention a war to my dad and he's never heard of it, then. I can probably be sure that before I became a history nerd, I hadn't heard of it either. But for whatever reason, the War of the Spanish Succession was somewhat talked about uh, in our house. I'm not sure like if that if that's normal or not. I think it was just my dad found the whole era fascinating. So I suppose he imparted that to me. But the War of the Spanish Succession was one of the few wars in my early days of podcasting that I looked into and then discovered that there was so much more to it than I realized. So in that sense, I see it now as the kind of rewarding war to, to me, like personally and professionally, because I see that the, the benefits involved in looking into something that you think you know like a whole load about. And then you end up discovering that the story is way more interesting than you actually first thought. I really, I had a great time and thank you so much. I, I guess I kind of broke the ice if this is the first one. Yeah, you did. <laughs> Thanks, I hope... Man. I hope I it turns out. Oh yeah, it'll be grand. It'll be good. I'm, I'm not too worried. I think I think it went very well altogether, and I'm sure that listeners will be looking forward very much to the next few. Which 
Speaking of which, <laughs> I'm recording the next one in about 20 minutes, so that'll, that'll be very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a long, long day, but it's worth it. But anyway, I want to thank you very much for coming on, Steve, and, and help me breaking the ice with this, this great remastered project that we're doing in these collaboration episodes. I want to thank you very much. Congratulations on your fifth year. Oh, thanks very much. Five whole years old. So if people want to find you, they go to the History of the Papacy podcast. Yes, and that everything, the Facebook, Twitter, the feed can all be found at a2zhistorypage.com. a2zhistorypage.com. That again, a2zhistorypage.com. Cool. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Steve, and I will talk to you very soon. Thanks. We made it through the other end. Good job. What did we think? As usual, I had a great time, and as usual, I probably rambled too much, but hey, I'm only human. I'm only human, and as you've probably gathered, that sort of is my style when it comes to having people at the other end of Skype. There's only so much you can really plan for in these. You can write out some notes in front of you, some things you'd like to bring up, some issues you'd like to raise, but there's only so much things you can actually bring up when it comes to an interview with someone who could talk about other things you might not be expecting and in a way I feel sorry for Steve because I don't talk over him but and I like to think I got better at this as time went on I let them or at least tried to let them talk more than I talked sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't I think certain guests when they come on they expect to well i think there's two categories of guests one of them are happy to just let me talk all over the shop others might want to talk a little bit more and then get perhaps surprised or even frustrated when they realize that i just don't shut up it's even worse than my solo episodes but yeah i hope you guys enjoyed it remember you can find steve garris podcast on a to z history podcast.com and then you click on the links to follow history of papacy stuff from there Support Steve Guerra just like you should be supporting When Diplomacy Fails. Guys, if you're listening to this, enjoying this, enjoying When Diplomacy Fails Remastered, I'm delighted you are because that's what I made it for, for your enjoyment and a present for all of us to enjoy. Something we can look back on five years from now when we're doing ten weeks to run wild. I'm just kidding, no way in hell is that happening. And say, aren't we glad that we all did this and wasn't it amazing? If you want to support, it doesn't have to be with money. It'd be great if it was, not gonna lie. I am newly married now when you're listening to this, so hey, a little bit and the side to set up my household will always be appreciated. But yeah, please check out WDFpodcast.com. Failing that, spread the word about When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. I would super appreciate it. WhenDiplomacyFails.com. And of course, remember, be fit. If you're thinking of ways to support, get in contact with, or even just inquire about this podcast. As you might have gathered, the back catalogue is a little bit smaller, but every freaking day, it's going to grow by at least two episodes. For the next five weeks, that is. So, it's a good time to be a history friend. Thanks for stopping by, guys. I hope you enjoyed this collaboration. And I will see you all soon.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.